And welcome to another episode of Mandatory Redistribution Party. Today's episode was recorded the weekend before the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, so me and Jack spent a little while talking about the economics and exploitative underpinnings of the world's largest arts festival. We also talked about our own experiences and a little bit about comedy in general. Part of me does feel it's a little bit boohoo smallest violin for us to be complaining that our chosen profession of comedy isn't able to provide for us given literally anything else in the world that's currently happening. But equally, I think diversity in the arts is important and if it's not possible for people who aren't independently wealthy to pursue work in the arts then I think we're all poorer for it. So why can't maybe those non-independently wealthy people be? Oh, I don't know. Me and Jack. And if your answer to that is that both me and Jack are white British men with university degrees and that alone means we've had advantages in life that other people haven't had and therefore there would be people who would better represent genuine and significantly diverse voices who are more deserving of that position then um, yes, you, you are correct and I am sorry. But at the same time, if me and Jack, who are immune from almost all forms of intersectional discrimination and bigotry, can't even scratch out a living in this place, then what chance does anyone stand? Uh, so what better guinea pigs than we to go in, not succeed, and have a little bit of a moan about it online? And yes, you're welcome, we are heroes. I'm sorry, some of that felt a little bit glib. Um, I'm just trying to have a little bit of fun at the beginning of the podcast. Please try and enjoy your, the episodes to the best of your abilities, despite my behaviour. I'm sorry. And just, just enjoy the app. Roll the app, please. Roll the app. Fringe. <laughs> just kind of an audiobook introduction. Fringe. <laughs> Chapter two. Fringe. Um, so Edinburgh Fringe starts next week. Uh, Thursday or Friday next week. Are we going to try and put this saggy in there? Or are we just... How are we introducing this? Like, when do you think this will be out to make oh, sense to a listener? Oh, I thought when you listener? said fringe, that word itself would be included in everything but since then we'd put in the episode. Okay. So I found you saying fringe. <laughs> <laughs> you've never... You've never before hit record and then just said the name of the topic we'd agreed to talk about. Well, I assume we said... Click go. Fringe. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean we would start from there. I assumed we would no, do. and I assumed we wouldn't as well, but I found that so funny. I think we should include it. All right. Because okay. otherwise we'll start with a giddiness that can't be explained. Because oh. I feel a bit... <laughs> That's put you on the back foot, has I it? I feel a bit fizzy now after hearing you say fringe. And I feel... Uh, and also me saying it back in the same style brings... It does something to my um, cardiovascular fringe. system. Fringe. No, it's not that. It's fringe. <laughs> it's It's... <laughs> neutral it's neutral sounding and then you've got this very 
um, lowering intonation towards the end. Mm. Fringe. Wow, I'm excited to and, hear and, and how you, I said that. And you hover on this kind of back of the throat, like fricative consonant. Mm. I really don't know, think I can re- replicate it. Fringe. <laughs> I'm exaggerating it more and more now. Fringe. You're turning it into a mantra Fringe. of some kind. Fringe. Yeah. That's your mantra that it gives me and probably some of the listeners' anxiety. Oh, even the fact that we're saying fringe and I can hear the word fringe being said at me makes me feel... I'm so fucking glad I'm not going out this yeah. year. I mean, no no judgment. I think Edinburgh is the Edinburgh Fringe is probably the biggest thing in my life that a lot of people have heard of, but that no one knows the even the basics of how it actually operates or what it is. Because when you're in comedy, you can't see the wood for the trees sometimes. I, I even was like surprised so many non-comedy people knew what the Fringe was. Mm. But when then you get in your head, you're like, oh, yeah, this is the largest arts festival in the entire world. Mm. People passively have an awareness that this thing exists. And so you say, I'm going to the Fringe. And they go, oh, yeah. Oh, wow, the Fringe. Yeah. But what they know of it, even people that have attended a lot and are like Fringe goers, they only have like an ankle deep awareness of like the incredible structure that's going on behind this facade. Mm -hmm. I mean, firstly, it's not that I dislike the fringe. Like, as someone that works within the arts and likes the arts, on some level, I, like, want things like this to exist, Mm. but I want to gut out the exploitation that runs through its veins. It has to be reformed, and I hope it can be reformed without having to disappear off the earth. But um, So even just to put this in... um, in like its most simple practical terms, it was either last year or the year before the Scotsman published interviews for some of the largest um, uh, umbrella events producers. They're like, we don't think the fringe would be possible if we paid people a living wage. Having gone away to look up this article while editing this episode, I discovered that the Scotsman had published a more recent article five hours prior, claiming that a new dossier had been released showing even more bad practices. Um, It's fundamentally the same story of exploitative labour conditions, staff expected to work an entire month with no days off and positions advertised at below the national minimum wage. Uh, But my favourite thing was that they discovered that one of the uh, major effects that last year's report had had on the fringe and their labour practices was that it just made them more secretive about their working conditions. And because it's a newspaper article, it just ends with a quick, unchallenged right to reply from the director of The Pleasants, who says that, actually, the legacy of their programme is incredibly positive. Uh, All staff are exploited. The deals that people make with comedians, um, almost all of them completely blockade the idea they could come away with money. Mm. Uh, Shows costing in five figures to, to run is not uncommon. Hmm. all shows cost at the very least like grand and a half or two grand um and you are mainly trying to not lose money yeah if you've that got is a, what your aim is if you're in a paid venue you're paying the cheapest ones are going to be yeah. pushing two grand and then you'll be giving a cut to the company yeah of god knows i think it's about a third so the the people who are making money at the fringe are the people who let out the spaces or manage the spaces that the comedians perform in sean so are you suggesting that the people who make the profit are those who own the means of production Mm. okay yeah i'm following and so 
I mean, I just guess it's just not widely understood by the by the punters. There's about three organisations. Sometimes it goes up to four, and then one disappears and submerges, or mm. there's another row. But there is something called the Free Fringe, which uh, runs on much lower overheads and allows people to collect donations straight from audiences that go mm. straight to the performer. And on the Free Fringe, or the Free Fringes, if you want to see them as like separate splintered organisations, as I know uh some factions within that do um <laughs> nice we, move we could talk more about that in a bit so the free fringe is possibly the only place where you could reliably make a profit but also you could make absolutely nothing you're reliant on on direct donations off of people and yeah depending on who you get or even how good the performance is 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 not as important as how good you are at doing the two minute monologue at the end where the you, begging where you explain how the system works and how you want money from people. If you are good at that, but have a bad show, you will make more money than someone has got a brilliant show, but isn't good at the bucket. Yeah. I think it was really hard. 2016, I found it really hard to do the bucket speech Yeah, and you just need to, cause it just sort of feels bad. Even though you've done, you have given a service to people that's good and it's something you've been working on for a year. Yeah. And you're like, this, I think this is really good. And they've been laughing through the show and you've had a good one. Yeah, it still even, feels... Even you feel like you've got the confidence to do it. Yeah. You just don't know how to get your head around saying, and now take money out of your pocket mm. and give it to me. And then that's mine now. Yeah, even though a cut of it has to go to the free fringe as well, even on them. But the... Or doesn't have to recommend a donation. It's a strange one. Be, so it's, if you yeah. ever want to come back, you better have done that. But it, it's. Well, do you know what I had in 2014 when I was just really bad at doing it? I had mm. a show that went quite well, and I had another comic, uh, an Irish comic, just just ran roughshod over my bucket speech and went, "No, you're doing this all wrong." <laughs> like at my show, and then just took the bucket off of me and went, "Hey, that guy just did a good show. Everyone had a really good time. So just give him some money, and we should talk about notes here. We're going to give him notes." Wow. And then he, just by doing that, tripled my intake for that day. Yeah. And that, for me, was my big wake-up call of going, I'd say it's been as hard, if not harder, to learn how to just ask for money off of people. For work. For work. I guess that's why capitalism runs on prices. Yeah. The price is displayed up here on the wall. Hmm. If I come to you and you've got to barter with me, how well this business does relies entirely on my personality. Mm. But the price being up on the wall removes that personality from it. Mm. But the fact that the fringe works on bucket donations that the performer holds means we've kind of gone back into that barter system where how well this does relies on how well I tell you that you should pay for it. It's even more complex than that because they're going in. I mean, it's it's a complicated, weird thing, isn't it? Because it's called the free fringe and it is, especially compared to the other venues it's much there is cheaper, more but of a move now to re-advertise it as pay, pay what, what you, you want, want pay what you feel is, yeah um which is more accurately describes what it is but kind of the etiquette is isn't like you don't it's not like the bargaining's happening before you give these people your labor mm. and make them laugh yeah and a good on a good day uh and then you and determine the value of it after afterwards fact, yeah, yeah after they've straight. already got it yeah oh you have eaten my melon how much yeah. do you think it was worth Please give me something. I have grown it. You've received something. This is how much I think it's worth. And if you pay less than that, I either it's because you don't earn very much money, and that's completely fine, or 
it's because you want me to feel bad or not have a nice life. <laughs> Be punished yeah. by the market. <laughs> it's a very hard one. The thing I've always, and this is outside of the fringe, I've, I've really had a hard time. I really strongly believe in pay what you want models. Oh, it's great, yeah. Or more more broadly, I believe in people, everyone being able to access the arts. Mm, exactly, that's why it's great. Accessibility. So, so, so pay what you want might not always be the best way to achieve that. What I want is that if you are broke, you can still come to a show. You don't become socially isolated or isolated from culture because mm. you are broke or because you are skin or because you're on the doll or whatever. Um, pay what you want can be a hard one because I think a lot of people who can pay it, exploit it, and then there's less money. You, you get punished for wanting to adopt that policy. And so you have to take a hard line on how you frame that to people to still let people in if they haven't got much money, but also not get ripped off by people. I'm sure there's a name for this mm. phenomenon, but like people who are poorer do tend to be more generous with their money and resources. Yeah, absolutely. And people who have more money and resources are more stingy with it. Yeah. And Ask so you any are taking... charity fundraiser sure. who's worked in a town center. The the uh the biggest bucket in proportion to the people i had in on my show last year which was yeah. like a very left it was called work and it was all about labor i had a bunch of people from my edinburgh socialist party in perfect but they were just it was mainly i think students or people yeah. in their early 20s who probably aren't making hella bank but i have no idea about any of their incomes i'm making an assumption but they gave me a pretty good bucket but i'd have there were two Saturdays when it was just like absolute landlord central. Yeah. I say that because there was a bit in my show where I talked about landlords and like there were just people who were legitimately buy to let landlords coming to see a show, which on every level, description, title, posters was like, this is a hard left yeah. show came. So strange and just... that these buy to let landlords feel entitled to uh, just go into areas <laughs> that aren't really for them. <laughs> very strange you must have had a bad batch um yeah they weren't they weren't they didn't enjoy the content yeah it's a shame because that's a real normally the selling point of the show killed the vibe a bit <laughs> and then and then didn't give me but to be fair you know that's like the system you know they they consumed the product of my labor decided no don't don't want it even yeah. though they sat through the whole thing yeah um and then just gave me fuck all money. Yeah. Um, I don't like anything that requires people to show their proof of unemployment or lo like. That's sinister. I think it's sinister, but also like unemployment's one thing, but low wage can leave you in just as much of a. You can be in work and be as poor as someone. Yeah, you can have so, two zero hours jobs. Yeah, three and be exactly. Fucked. And, so, the and then how do I get someone to prove their low wage? What do you want? Like an annual statement. I'm not here to get evidence off of you. If you, in your head, say I'm low waged, then that's absolutely fine for me. It's embarrassing enough to get someone just to say I don't earn very much money. Well, that's why means testing's bullshit. You'd have to set up a whole bureaucracy. Means testing yeah. always ends up more expensive because you've got to set up a bureaucracy. bureaucracy to, to, yeah, and then quantify everything in someone's life that might affect their income outgoing balance, mm. and then make a standified, uh, standified, uh, <laughs> make a standardized way of measuring that across all human beings in a country. Chips, mate. Like Logan's run chips in your hand where you beep it, and it's your payment thing, but it also will tell them if you are eligible, and you put your hand over the contact list. Yeah. Beep. And then it says, as you walk into the show, it goes, poor, poor. <laughs> and then you get shown to the yeah. special seat 
If you oh. if you walk through the scanners on the way into Marks and Spencers, they go, "Oh, you can no longer be unemployed now because you bought a nice tea cake." <laughs> <laughs> we detect enjoyment levels yeah. in your blood. Then they send you to that gauntlet thing in Logan's Run, where they just fly you into the sky, and some of you vanish. <laughs> we've we've detected in this person's hand that they are economically poor. But they they they've had a lovely yeah. they had a bag of chips. They're emotionally rich. Yeah, they're having a good time. <laughs> Poor yeah. but happy. No. Yeah. No comedy for you. Your your other hand fights that hand. <laughs> <laughs> but there isn't an ideal way of doing it. Unfortunately, one way requires people to sort of declare their income, which I don't like. One way just allows people who don't just want just want to be stingy to not give you any money, and it just. Well, also, there's so many structures as well. We're talking about the comedy. You know, before I said, oh, the people who own the means of production, like, taking mm-hmm. all money. And they are, but it's not It's not even the means of production. It's more the means of distribution because your mind and body, the thing, you know, you created the comedy yeah. in the months leading up to the Fringe and then you're performing in just a room that's in Edinburgh, probably hundreds of years old, yeah. <laughs> just a damp cave. And then... But there's so there's people getting exploited. There's flyers who are getting exploited. There's people who tech shows who are getting exploited. There's people who are doing the tickets who are getting exploited. And but then there's another layer of like the free fringe is good and it's a maybe a better model than some of the other really more expensive ones from an act perspective in terms of accessibility to performer. Mm-hmm. So people who want to help their labor gets exploited more you get like a tragedy of the commons and i know that's been debunked and it's bullshit but you get like that kind of idea where um the people who worry and stress about oh these lights aren't going to be working so on a, on a free fringe show no one is setting up the room the or the you all you're going to be provided with is a room from the free fringe and that'll be other that's not the free fringe that's other people in the free fringe as a collective are providing, bringing PAs up from other places. Yeah. So you're going to get a PA, you're going to get a mic, and you're going to get a black background. Mm-hmm. And it's probably, I'm talking about PBH, but it's probably similar on the Laughing Horse, right? I'd say that PBH might be the worst for that, especially when they had Cowgate Head under short notice and everything was full of sawdust. And the, and that the, the dividers between the rooms, oh, because you were in Cowgate, weren't you? Oh, you've, Drop me. I was trying to be vague. Okay. So, yeah, I was in... Oh, fuck I'll it. happily talk about it because I don't care. Um, <laughs> so, there was... Oh, I'm not going to do PBH again. Was this 2016? It was 2016. I, I venue captained because no one else volunteered to do it. The floor or the whole venue? Oh, just just my room. Oh, uh, yeah, but, yeah, okay. Um, some people were extremely nice and helpful. Uh, Hang on, can I just talk about Cowgate Headgate? Because I think it's a cracking story. Oh, go on. Contextualise, yeah. So in 2016, uh, PBH Free Fringe, which stands for Peter Buckley Hill. Uh, Peter Buckley Hill is like an increasingly cantankerous uh, old comic performer who's become incredibly and perhaps uh, only associated with the Fringe through the creation of his Free Fringe, which tried to allow uh, you know just people from poorer backgrounds to perform at the Fringe by not asking for huge fees. Uh, the trade-off is that you are sort of forming in random rooms and their very expansionist philosophy means there are always venues and areas entering into their uh, production format that are in bizarre locations, wildly inaccessible. Um, I had someone uh, fall down the uh, 
grade two listed steps into one of my shows and sprain their ankle like that's the kind of place we're talking about and they had to travel really far outside of the fringe in order to have that uh experience and there's turf um, wars between there's multiple free fringes yeah. so there's the two main there's pbh who's the original big boy yeah and then there's laughing Alex horse petty with laughing horse is that called free festival it's oh there's yeah, a copy it might be. so i believe that they both originally worked together um but then there was some i don't know what this rift was about but there was some fundamental difference and uh pbh has taken this into his heart as a nugget of hatred that has only grown stronger year after year there was an incredible occasion perhaps 2015 or 2000 and, 2014 or 2015 perhaps where uh there had been like a kickabout like a, a very uh, light-hearted uh, round of football matches organized between different members of the paid fringe and the free fringes and um uh, the the free festival the original splinter free fringe was supposed to be doing a friendly against uh, pbh free fringe um, and when pbh found out about that he sent an email around everyone on the mailing list which i should say must contain over a thousand people at the very minimum saying not only was this an outrage but it was um, as bad as breaking the apartheid in South Africa. <laughs> that was a classic. Yeah. When it was first proposed, perhaps in May or June, that we should play a football match against Laughing Horse, my response was an emphatic no. Playing a match against them would make us appear to endorse them. We do not endorse them. Their tactic throughout has been to confuse the public into thinking that their shows are our shows. Their programme causes significant damage to ours by putting on shows without quality control and therefore encouraging the public to think that free shows are worse than paid shows. I will not go further into the many reasons why we should have no truck with them. By playing them at football, we would acknowledge them as somehow an equal and legitimate force. We do not acknowledge them as that. They are, I believe, the biggest threat to the free movement at the fringe. Instead, it was proposed that we should challenge the comedy festival, Pleasance, Gilded Balloon, Assembly, Just the Tonic, who in comedy are our artistic equals and as a combination are about our size. The match was duly advertised. I now learn, via Facebook, that tomorrow's match is, despite anything, against Laughing Horse. This has happened behind my back. I was not told of this. I believed that we were playing the comedy festival. I feel hurt and betrayed by this. I have been told an incorrect version of events to mask the fact that a match is taking place which is precisely the one I said ought not to take place. I had even considered investigating the price of a football kit and considered using our very scarce resources to ensure our team was smartly turned out. I am glad this came to nothing. There are many good reasons why we should not acknowledge Laughing Horse. When South Africa had apartheid, 
the world shut off sporting connections with South Africa. I feel the same ethic should apply here. I shall not be going to this match. I do not endorse it. If I am told any more untruths, now would be the time to bring them to my attention. Regards, PBH. And there's so many other ones, like in the rules that you have to sign up in a contract if you if you engage with them, you are forbidden explicitly from doing anything with Laughing Horse. The, the, I don't know if they're referred to by name or some like I think the, it's the, just other the like, traitors it's just like other free fringes and it's like other is in bold and underlined yeah, and then other the free fringes in like quote marks because yeah. they aren't the authentic the true the one true ring but they and we're not exaggerating this this is done in the same level of like pompous granddad style anger it is really over the top have I told you about time time to fuck off he has told everyone to fuck off at some point so what I did was, you do to him I was flying for me jane edwards and liam pickford had like a compilation show yeah i remember first show one, from yeah. eight years ago and um what was it called I had a good name um tiny poseidon's erotic meat trifle yeah that was it uh so we were flyering i was flyering outside the horrible horrible venue that the oh it was just a curtain was put up in the middle of a very loud bar yeah that they would put it seemed to be they would put sports on all the time but what i didn't understand is what sport was on in august but any lacrosse something they would they would turn louder during i remember watching jane and then the tv going louder because jane was obviously they didn't interrupting want to hit, the sport interrupting the sport it was and trucks were going past because it was too hot and the doors were opening straight onto the street it was bleak um, but I was flyering and he's got loads of rules about flyering. Like you can't just give out your flyer. You have to give out the free fringe booklet, booklet yeah. with your, with your thing. And then you have to like flyer for that, which, you know, again, there's like, there's a seed of some logic there of like, oh, we're all helping each other. Cause mm. if we give out the book, there's a seed of something good there, but the way it's executed is totally bizarre. I Flyered him, knowing who he was. He's got. He's very distinctive. He looks like an apocalyptic Dumbledore. And oh, I've made a Harry Potter reference. I feel <laughs> reading another yeah, book. Put me, put me. <laughs> <laughs> just take me out the back and yeah. shoot me now. Um, the uh, I think I, Dumbledore's what I thought of because I was thinking of things I hate, and that's where it. That's the seed. Dumbledore's done nothing wrong, actually. Dumbledore don't. Um, <laughs> so. I go, oh, free comedy or something to him as yeah. as like a, oh, this is clearly the man know who you that are. In- yeah. invented the free fringe. It would be an amusing thing for I, a comedian at a comedy festival to, you know, maybe a million people have done it. I don't know. I was young. Probably I was a, a fool. Lot but yeah, yeah. Right. It's not a heinous offense. He, he stopped in his tracks, looked me up and down like I was a piece, a, a, a tiny nugget of shit a winnet from the most rancid mountain goat. An owl pellet. He fucking just slow, deep loathing, building up. And then when he reached my eyes, he said, fuck off. And then walked off. It wasn't though. I really want to clarify that his fuck off was not a jokey response to my joke. Like I thought about that. For eight, I was like, oh, have I just misread that? I'm guessing it was like a naught to 11, like calm to instantly furious fuck off. Absolute 
horror and like yeah. instantly feeling like I felt, but I was like, oh shit, what have I done? Like, have yeah. I done something really you wrong? took it into your heart. To con- oh, it was just so, the man's bananas. I should talk about my worst venue, which doubles up as my worst PBH free fringe experience. I think that helped create Mega Morley though. Something happened with that experience. Like you've always been good cause, and we've always been friends, but something happened after that fringe that unlocked Mega Morley. Yeah, I think I was a, a lump of coal that got crushed into a gemstone on that August. Um, so, do you, do you agree with that? I say 2015 is when I got good yeah. or the end of 2014 after I did that fringe. Right. That's like when I got good at comedy was after I had that hideous experience. But I don't think it was because of the marquee that I was talking about. I think it was because of the... <laughs> I forgot it's a marquee! Yeah, it's a marquee. In my head, it's a smoking area. In my head, it's like 2014, the year Sean Before did a fringe smoke. in a smoking area. Let me tell the story. <laughs> marquee! So I already mentioned that I had that venue that someone... You had to go into like a converted beer cellar mm. and the steps were like ancient and not uniform and sloped none of the steps themselves provided a horizontal surface to the foot you have to answer a riddle from a goblin to pass through the steps and it was like there's an area which is the fringe and you just walk outside of it to get to this venue um (laughs) so that's where i was and that was like my first full run and i had a really honkingly miserable time Mm. and then i had asked in my feedback could I be somewhere else, perhaps somewhere closer to the fringe? And they said, oh, we'll take that into account. And we've given you this area in, in a new Ibis hotel. I thought, <laughs> okay, right. it'll, be, it'll be like one of those, because like Space UK have those really sterile converted hotel rooms. Right. I thought it would be one of those. I can make that work. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, inside. Yeah. It'll probably have air conditioning if it's a hotel. And then I turn up and, and, and I'm already there. I've spent all my money I've got accommodation, I've got flyers, everything's already go. I can't go up to Edinburgh to see a thing and come back. I don't have the time or resources to do that. And they say it doesn't exist anyway. It'll it'll be made up how it will be before the fringe. You cannot see this venue ahead of time. (laughs) It's abstract. And so I go up and it is a small marquee style tent. Like it's an awning on sticks that (laughs) that is outside the restaurant. And I say, what? what is this? And go, we'll stick a speaker in there. You can talk in this. There's like three walls and then it just faces out into what is a public thoroughfare. That is a cut through to get up onto the, onto the next street that people walk through constantly. But what's more is the manager of the Ibis Hotel, the same person who's agreed to use this as a venue for the Fringe. Mm. It is also their official designated smoking area, which means that every, everyone at that hotel or anyone dining at the associated restaurant... <sighs> legally is not allowed to smoke anywhere but inside my show so it's not just a smoking area it's the compulsory the smoke zone yeah you can't smoke anywhere else that is where you have to smoke like legally and that's why it's only got three walls as well if they gave it a fourth wall people couldn't smoke in there yeah so people are walking into my show which by the way has like 20 seats Hmm. it's not a big room so the addition of our person walking in and lighting up mm. is incredibly distracting. It's like part of this like architectural corridor. The wind blows in. The smoke does not ventilate out. The smoke <laughs> is blown by the ambient wind, uh, wind flow in the thoroughfare <laughs> into the venue. 
This show definitely reduced your lifespan. This show absolutely destroyed me to the point where I just asked all my flyers to stop. I don't want people to come. I'll come and tell people it's cancelled mm. on a daily basis. It made me so sad. It made me so sad that I didn't perform at the Fringe again for three years. Fucking That's how hell. bad it was. Like it, 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 I think it set my mental health back and my lifespan back. Like genuinely, I think it made me so messed up that it hurt my mental health. And that also hurt my just normal health. And I will die sooner because of that. That month. But you know what, buddy? Flyers, you paid for, got some people in. And they bought a couple of pints from that Ibis Hotel bar. Yeah, you're right. And that... That's the circle of life. Yeah, helped GDP. Yeah. So... That's the nitrogen Want for nothing. Want for nothing. And so, uh, fast forwarding now uh, to 2016, a new but incredibly short-lived free fringe started up. Another um, splinter group, I think. I have no idea where they came from. Oh, no, it was. Mm. It was. It was people who made an ultimatum to PBH. And they did so... Very reasonably by saying everything, the whole way the system works is so opaque that if you were suddenly to die tomorrow, the, this organization would have to stop. No one knows the logins for anything. No one can access vital information. So we're not asking you to lose any of your powers or responsibilities, but could you appoint some people who would be able to even access to these things? Sean, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Hold- then it kicks them all off of the committee. Hold your horses, buddy. Like, because the PBH, Free Fringe, is all about the collective and the socialist spirit and togetherness. And it's only possible through the collective action of everyone. I think it's maybe taking up the socialist mantle of the... Uh, Mao. <laughs> I was going to say the Politburo and erasing people from photographs who have turned out not to agree with your five-year plan. So fast forward, not well, why is that five? We're in twenty sixteen. Just fast forward to now, to where we already are, yeah. which is three years ago. There's a splinter group. It's sponsored by a pizza company, La Favorita Free Festival, and they have claimed they now have ownership of Cowgatehead. Cowgatehead is a very bizarre and very unwelcoming and very grotty uh, storage facility or something. You wouldn't store anything in there because it would just either inexplicably be destroyed by damp or or a, f- or, or a fire yeah. that where the, no one could escape i don't know what this place functions as outside of the fringe but cowgate Head crime is turned into about 12 to 16 uh real dog shit venues um and so by taking it off of pbh this new free festival actually scored quite a big blow off of the traditional free fringes and then mm. picked up loads of venues very quickly. Then there was this real, I don't know if it was June or July, it was very close to August. And remember, people are doing fringe prep from like January sometimes. Mm. So like you need to get everything because there are deadlines and schedules and programs. Everything needs to be sorted uh, much, much earlier in the year. And then at one point, PBH said, no. <laughs> I have control of Cowgate Head now. And they went, well, how can you? Because the other people who are doing this new free festival have registered with the programs. They spent hundreds of pounds. He didn't even say now. He just, he let them, he, he let them, them and then said, give I all these always acts. Owned. He let them give these acts <laughs> the venues. He let yeah. them 
Uh, he let the people presumably book accommodation. So people, the collective cost of that is well, well into the many thousands of pounds. Oh, tens of thousands. Of and that's financial, never mind emotional career stuff. Yeah. Like many unknowns. And then he came out and was like, you've never, yeah. you've never had I forgot that, yeah. It's not that I've regained control. It's that, by the way, you said you had that, but you never had. And so it came to me known as Cowgate Headgate, uh, which is a tremendous boon. And the story of it is confused, and I don't know much of it, but essentially that that venue is owned by um, a dubious uh, Scottish family, each of whom on the on the mail line always name their son the same name as them. So there are three men, each of a different generation, <laughs> but each have the exact same name. And different people have been <laughs> emailing different ones. And one of them that was out of the loop, who didn't think Cowgate Head was being used for anything, said, yeah, you could use that. But technically, only the most senior hmm. patriarch of this family had the rights to say who owns it and who didn't. And it never, it had always been promised to PBH. So PBH knew that he could gazump their claim to it by talking to a more senior man with the, uh, the same name and i remember cowgate head that year was in one of the worst states it's ever been in because the imagine just you're in like a big warehouse and what separates one show from another show in this warehouse is just a small sheet of plywood mm -hmm. that doesn't even like go to the ceiling so if you've got like let's say a loud show they never take into account like what shows will be loud or what shows will be quiet you could have a big improv show where everyone's like shouting over each other everyone's shouting suggestions and you could be doing quite a like a melancholic quiet intimate spoken word show right next to it like feet away from it and your show will be destroyed and you are there for a month but when that so going circling way back to when i started talking about the problems of labor in the free fringe basically a hardcore of people i suspect the people who have anxiety about yeah. shit and are stressing will make sure because i was in, i was in cowgate head mm -hmm. 2016 i think this thing might have been 2015 because i was in it on pbh and there was no controversy in 2016 so okay. the i was in it other thing about that venue i've just remembered they put a massive speaker outside the bar blasting into yeah. cowgate yeah. which is i think there every year and the cowgate if you know edinburgh it's a street with buildings, you know, right up both sides. So this speaker would blast music into the street that would then bounce off the walls on the other side yeah. back into the venue. So you would get sound. But if you were trying to do anything, if you had like a poignant moment in your show where you needed to pause, yeah. all you're going to get is like... <laughs> just, you know, you couldn't build any tension at all. So I know this is a stand-up show, we've had, we've had a lot of fun, but I just want to get serious for a minute. I want to share what it's what the show's really about. For the next scene, we need a location. Can we get a suggestion for a location? It's called Tyler. Impressing Uncle Pete. Tyler. And I've told you a few funny tales about me, okay, my Uncle Pete. Thank you, but Uncle Pete isn't real. He never was. Uncle Pete is a figment of my imagination. I conjured during a traumatic under-12s five-a-side game. A big lad kicked a ball into my head, toppled me into the mud. I looked over to where the parents stood and saw the big lad's dad just 
pointing and laughing at me. My dad wasn't there. My dad was in my books. That's when I first saw Uncle Pete. That's when he came. That's when he changed my life. I'm sorry, is that? Is that distracting anyone? Oh. This is just really, you know, it means a lot to me. I've worked on this show for, for nine months. And I've really worked oh, on it for, no. for, for my whole oh, life. Hitler. I've been thinking about it. I wish I could be the gunny and just turn that fucking music off. And that improv. You've got to go. I'm not, just, you don't have to put anything in the book. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. I should be doing comedy. I'm going home. I'm going home. Cowgate has one of the most unpleasant bottlenecks in the entire city at that at that point of year. Because Cowgate clearly is, like from a historical and city planning point of view, it is an alley that has had to become a street. Mm. It's had to somehow function as a street. But clearly, I mean, just from the name Cowgate Head, it was just a place for farm herders to walk mm. like livestock through. It's this tiny little street that now cars are constantly having to battle against pedestrians against and the entrance to cowgate head is right over um pedestrianized bridges above mm. you and so rainwater and like mo- mossy water is constantly dripping down um oh, fuck it's, it's really it's bad i sick just talking it's like about proper it. vietnam flashback stuff and the other way in which it's exploitative is that what you are told the rewards are of, of uh going to edinburgh exploits people in the same way that uh, the lottery exploits hopeless people. It's very much <laughs> yeah. a lottery thing yeah. of you could, and there's absolutely no reason to believe that you would, come away with this with some uh, contract or some deal or you win an award. But unlike the lottery, no one's pretending it's based on luck. Mm. And no one's pretending it's not based on pre-existing contacts that you have before the fringe in the first place. Like, the fringe, I'm not saying that the fringe is... Um, completely locked down closed shop um because there have been breakout successes from mm. people who weren't like mega connected or weren't john cleese's daughter but they are a rarity to the point that when they happen i'm like oh wow there was one instance of the american dream actually making sense mm. but that, that that's against the backdrop of just loads of people going along the trajectory that realistically they always were going to like to put it another way Almost all major publications print what the best shows of The Fringe are before The Fringe even started. So the idea that The Fringe is a place you go to find out what the year's culture is or find out who the new voices are, well, how can that possibly be the case if you're expected to already be in Time Out magazine Hmm. before The Fringe has even begun? The BBC even decide who the picks of The Fringe are. The picks of The Fringe have to be decided at The Fringe because there are people there who are poor. Or mm. don't know how to do PR. And PR, again, it's paying someone who already has lots of contacts. It's paying just for someone's Rolodex. Mm. They can't make a better press release than you can. I mean, sometimes they can if you're dog shit making a press release. The only obstacle between you and a good press release is how much you're willing to give completely unqualified praise to yourself. But what you're paying for with a lot of people is, oh, I already know someone at The Guardian, and you don't. So if you want to know them or have me email them, that's at least a £1,000. At the very least. It's a um, microcosm of some of the worst aspects of capitalism. Like just like people uh, 
work themselves to the bone for an unattainable dream. People sincerely believe it, like deluding themselves that everything's meritocratic. And yeah, like, it's got a real, I don't know how loads of places have an illusion of a meritocracy. Yeah. But I don't know how comedy has it the way it does. Meritocracy relies on there being like some objective functional <laughs> measurement of value. Mm. And treating comedy like it's a hammer. I know if a hammer's a good hammer, the nails go in. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And saying, oh, I could just apply, yeah. obviously slightly more complicated, but I'll just apply a similar hammer criterion. Obviously, people got to laugh and they've got to enjoy it and they've got to engage with it. And so it's fucking art. I'm sorry. Mm. It's because me and, me and Jack like started doing comedy in the North. And mm. in addition to a North-South divide, there's like a real big cultural divide split into comedy between those who invest a lot of their times into these festival circuits where you're expected to make longer productions they've got to have some kind of emotional hook they've got to have some sort of narrative tying them together and then club comedy which is often something that's referred to in quite a pejorative way but essentially in short it's people who travel and they do shorter sets at clubs and their main source of income are these saturday night gigs um where they don't need to try and impress broadsheet journalists they can just do jokes and just but you do need to try and impress a stag do which is a whole different skill set in itself which is a different skill set and and and, and who's so... to say one one's i'm not going to say one's better or worse they're just different things aren't they and like we kind of learn they're, they're two kinds of art that are formed yeah. by the economics of how the people who perform them make their living yes so if you're a comedian and you want to make a living you've got two broad choices throw your line with these festivals or you want to impress a bunch of promoters all down the country and you want to make who whatever kind of people turn up to their club laugh and that turns you into a different kind of comedian and yeah there's like this real tribalistic rivalry between the two and people can move and have moved or straddled between the two but that dichotomy does seem to it exists and it is meaningful so i think yeah. it's like a real thing there's lots of people say oh i don't see the difference but well, i i think there is because you can't learn comedy you can't practice comedy in your bedroom you can only learn it by doing it mm -hmm. so you have to learn comedy on stage and the stage you're performing on has a feedback loop into the type of comedy you do yeah so m me and sean tend to be w would be put on the weirder or more alternative spectrum of th things and but we learned to do that in clubs yeah where that isn't necessarily what the audience is expecting whether or not however we feel about it mine and jack's comedy career was forged in the northern mm. club comedy circuit it might not be where we're drawing our income from now but that's that's where we learned to to do comedy yeah so the people who get really good on the clubs and they just do the clubs they tighten up their set and they get a really really good tight 20 some of them keep doing that 20 for years a lot of the best ones obviously don't but they're always applying the same skills and they've like learned how to play that instrument that ever-changing instrument of that audience yeah. they know how to play those weekend audiences you know of stags like quite a hostile thing and they've honed their their craft and a lot of what it's based on is laugh rate reliable laugh rate yeah. you will be booked on the basis of that one uh criteria are you yeah. funny I'm the promoter. I've only got, and I do this as a job. I might run a bunch of gigs. So all I'm really doing is keeping an ear out for the audience. Can I hear them laughing? I did. You'll come back again mm. in six months time. Yeah. Whereas in the fringe, not only can you not hone this one thing over a decade, 
you have to be pumping out a new hour every year. So the idea that you could hone one thing to perfection is out of the window. It's like you're sub- you're just putting another coin in the pinball machine and then seeing how it bounces around the festival circuit. <laughs> might pick up a nomination for something here. It might pick up something else. Oh, a broadsheet person said something broadly lukewarm, but if I just cut out one clause in that sentence, it sounds a lot more positive than mm. it is. That's the game you're playing, and it's such a different game, and it's way more of a lottery. Club comedy is a lot more like... I don't mean this in a derogatory way, like it's less of an artistic pursuit, but it's it's a bit more tradesman-like in that I have my clients, I, I create the professional... artistic. No, I'm, I'm saying, I'm not trying to imply that it's less of an artistic pursuit, but the way that you make your money is similar to how a, a tradesperson would mm. in that I have my clients who regularly have shipments or whatever they need, and I will, I will reliably give them the good I create. Mm. And I have a professional relationship and they order from me on a regular basis, yeah. and I can balance my books yeah. on how many clients I have on a regular basis. When you do the festival circuit, you're playing two things. One is I have audiences who come to me in these different festivals. I have a fan base. Hmm. I think one of the big distinctions, I think, is that from what I've noticed, your main thing is that you make these links with these promoters. You're not marketing yourself directly to the audience. Hmm. But at a festival, you have to market yourself directly to punters. Hmm while also trying to catch the eye of any reviewers or anything that makes you seem good or legitimized to God knows who, the the onanistic Ouroboros of the comedy industry. So it's not just, so both the business model's different and the type and nature of the content you're creating yeah. is different. Yeah. And going back to the reason I brought it all up is that compared to club comedy, I did a good service for you. Please buy that service off me again in six months. That seems very straightforward, economically way more stable. But the festival circuit is a lottery and lotteries are exploitative, especially when it is presented to you as being far more democratic or open access than it really is. Mm. When in fact, there are loads of people going up who everyone could scan an eye over and going, you will get nothing from this. This is rinsing you a significant amount of money in your life. And I'm talking about people who genuinely... It could fuck up their life. Like their life can be set back by this. Mm. You've invested all of this in. Your life was set back by it. My life was genuinely set back by it. Yeah. I'm thinking about people who went all in. I've always known the fringe can't get you money. But I am aware of plenty of people who never thought it would be as bad as it was. Mm. Went in just with a bit of naivety and sunk some savings into it. Fuck. And that obviously fucks you. Yeah. I've always gone, invest as less, little as I can so I can't tank all my savings and then take what meager amount I can, I can draw from it. And I've done the fringe maybe five or six times total. Mm. And I'm just now being able to come away with profit. Mm. Modest profit. When you consider it's a month's work plus perhaps another month's worth of work mm. of just what we're talking about, planning, traveling to previews, doing the previews. Mm. It's incredible that it is that it's the largest arts festival in the world, but also within comedy, you still sort of have to do it. You can't not do it. And I'm not saying I'm not saying it's like FOMO. I'm <laughs> saying that if you actually ever wanted to be part of a broadcast media or get an agent mm. and you don't live in London, you have to go to the place where you know there will reliably be at least once a year. Otherwise you'll never make the professional contacts to move up into another stage of the career 
Fuck. There's something Victorian and archaic about the whole way the whole thing works. That you need to go and like actually destroy yourself or risk bankruptcy on an annual basis <sighs> to work in the arts. Oh and that's my. why the that's why the fringe is full of incredibly rich people who'll do it on a whim. The fringe is chock a block with vanity projects. And I know the people who work in the arts actually rely on these upper middle class vanity projects for people who have theatrical related skills actually to get bread on the table. Yeah, if you work at, if you're a lighting rigger or something, yeah. or a tech. You need you someone get... with more money than sense to be putting something on. Trickle down. <laughs> it's yeah, that's actually a little bit of trickle down for you there. The, trickle down yeah. describes a lot of the it describes that economics and also Cowgate Head. <laughs> Something's always trickling on you. In Edinburgh, oh, you're being trickled on constantly. If it's not raining, there's a new fire. Mm. <laughs> Edinburgh catches fire every August because a lot of old wiring is put into ancient buildings. Mm. Oh, starts again next week. A canny wait. <laughs> Good luck, mate. Mandatory Redistribution Party was produced and created by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our theme music was created by Ella Jean. Additional music was created by Sean Morley, with the exception of John Philip Souser's The Charlatan March, which was produced and recorded by the American Marine Band in 2016. If you'd be willing to help our podcast out with likes, subscriptions, reviews, recommendations, that all goes a long way to helping us out and helping more people find out about it. If you're not willing to do any of that, feel free to go on a massive rant online about how much you hate it. It all feeds into the algorithm. Thank you, and good night. So Sean's done the outro there, but because he's a modest egg, and maybe because the thought of using this radical left podcast to promote his work made him feel icky, he failed to promote his own 2019 Edinburgh Fringe show. So I'm unilaterally sticking this on the end. Sean's show is called Soon I Will Be Dead and My Bones Will Be Free to Wreak Havoc Upon the Earth Once More. Yeah, right, you're on board straight away. Uh, you can find Sean's show every day at 3.20 at The Hive from August 1st to August 25th, except on the 7th and the 21st. Sean's live solo shows are absurd and intelligent and weird and great, and this one's an absolute banger. Uh, and it's got bones! Obviously, I would recommend it because we do a podcast together and he is my friend. But if you're like, listening to this, like you got right to the end of this, you'll probably agree with me. Imagine if I just put this on to tell you to not go and see it. Just like hashtag sabotage Morley. Uh, every episode I just undermine my friend. <laughs> is, that, is that what you want? Uh, to balance out this, uh, please also check out Fair Fringe, the campaign to improve the wages and working conditions of fringe workers. Right, I'm off. Have a good one. Top lads, top times. Cheers.